Welcome back to the 138th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through two stories with differing opinions on the Supreme Court's decision to cancel Biden's student debt cancellation plan and an article talking about how the U.N. is coming for state sovereignty. Very interesting one, and for you that are anti-globalist, it'll be a fun article. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So my question for you today, is it morally right to shift the financial burden of individuals who made a decision to other people who played no part in that decision? Now, you, of course, you probably see what I'm alluding to, but when you just initially heard that, what was the first thing that came to mind? I want to know everybody's opinions. Throw them down in the comment section. I want to see where everybody lines up on that. Don't let the issue guide you. Don't let the partisan talking points guide you in the way that you answer the question. Just that question itself. And I would love to be in a little bit of a back and forth in the comment section, so hopefully we get a few differing opinions. All right, let's jump to our first story that comes from Counterpunch. Is student debt a crime against America's future? So if you can't tell, this is a left-wing article that has a very specific perspective about what this student debt cancellation plan would do and the fact that the Supreme Court struck it down, what that means for the future of America. And this is a very, at least a important, strong argument, in my opinion, which is we want to have an educated populace. Now, how we actually get there and what different incentives or different legislation we pass, basically anything that we put in place as a government or as a society in order to further education, this is a battle that we need to have. This is a conversation that we will continue to have forever as technology changes. Maybe we'll have AI tutors who personalize everything at home rather than going to a public school system. Maybe homeschooling will become a more viable option in the future. All of these types of decisions and discussions about how we want to educate our populace, they will go on forever. They will never end here. But now the conversation focuses around college tuition. And they come out swinging. I mean, they are called counterpunch, so it kind of makes sense. Quote, six Republicans on the Supreme Court just killed President Biden's student loan debt forgiveness program. Republicans predictably are giddy, celebrating another Supreme Court victory in which, on behalf of their neo-fascist billionaire owners, they're again owning the libs. They're ecstatic that poor and working-class people, particularly black women, as ABC News noted, quote, hold nearly two-thirds of the nearly $2 trillion outstanding student debt in the U.S., will find it even harder to climb into the middle class, which increasingly requires a college degree, end quote. And there's a little bit more here, and we'll go on to that, but I want to pause here, which is creeping into the middle class increasingly requires a college degree. Is that true? Because a lot of different employers, a lot of different people that I've been talking to say, no, no, it's not just about a college degree. We know that you can learn a lot of skills online. You can train yourself online. You can go through apprenticeships. And there is a sentiment in some of these places that experience is more important than a degree, a piece of paper that comes from a university that is just giving 
different kids a perspective that they have to fully absorb. I mean, you kind of saw this little bit of a pushback during the Reagan administration, which is, oh, well, these colleges are too liberal. And for some who are actually in the business environment, they're seeing some of these kids come out of colleges who aren't actually more informed about how to do their job. I mean, even in some of my job interviewing, they said to me, oh, yeah, we understand that they don't actually teach you this in college. We just assume that you're a blank slate. So it really is seen more as a, oh, hey, I'm willing to torture myself for four years. You're willing to put in the work. You're willing to go through the educational structure, and you're willing to put your nose to the grindstone. And that's why some of the metrics and some of the GPAs and different accommodations or, sorry, different honors and accreditations that you can get at college still matter a little bit. But a lot of people are talking about experience. And there was an interesting conversation I was listening to the other day where some people at the waste management company that does a lot of the picking up of our trash and things like that, they couldn't find people to fill 90-ish thousand dollars salary positions to be a truck driver, but they were able to find plenty of kids that were willing to be paid fifty to 60000 to do a more white-collar job in an office and you know fill out paperwork, do spreadsheets and things like this. So... It's not that the opportunity isn't there for people that aren't college educated, but there definitely is a social stigma to some degree. I'm not trying to completely destroy the author's narrative. There is an idea that the path forward is, hey, go to college, put in your work, take on a little bit of debt, get out and get a good job. And it does also mention later here that, or even in the next article that we talk about, that going to college actually increases the likelihood or increases the amount of money that you will make over your lifetime. There is no denying that. But to simply say that the only way up through the middle class, that college is the only way to get out, is not necessarily true. So I want to at least preface or at least put a few brackets around this quote and make sure you understand the context. Like I'm kind of like a fact checker. You know, I'm, I'm Snopes, real time, baby. I'm telling you some of the BS and then also mentioning where they are right. So let's get back to the quote. Quote, when you search on the phrase student debt forgiveness, one of the top hits comes up from Fox News, articles by women who have paid off their loans in full. Quote, there are millions of Americans like me, the author writes, for whom debt forgiveness is an infuriating slap in the face after years of hard work and sacrifice. Those used to be qualities we encouraged as an American culture. And if Biden gets his way, we'll be sending a different message to the next generation. End quote. And you can, of course, see where these people are coming from. If you have had to pay off your student debt, you had to take out loans in order to go to college, and you have spent 20 years at a good job slowly paying off that debt, and then all of a sudden someone comes behind you and they say, oh, yeah, well, you know those kids that graduated after you or the kids that are going right now who are actually going to relieve some of their debt. And, well, I'm sorry, you don't qualify. We're not going to give you a repayment for the loans that you paid off because you've already paid off your debt, so there's nothing there for us to actually pay off or get rid of for you. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. Then you can imagine what the emotional response from those people is going to be, which is, why am I getting screwed? Why am I the one that is going to now have to take on the burden of their loans in my taxes, and I don't even get the benefit of getting my loans forgiven? Why do they get the free ride? I think it is very interesting here when they say, we'll be sending a very different message to the next generation, which is 
I guess what they would argue is, oh, well, you can go through college, you can take out loans, but you don't have to be responsible, you don't have to pay them off, considering the context of our earlier quote. I think maybe an alternative message that it would send to our kids is that we really value college education. We value it so much as a society that we're actually going to give it to you for free. Because let's be clear, this is the end goal of forgiving the debt. It's eventually to normalize the fact that people aren't paying to go to college. They're getting their debt forgiven 20 years apart. And then over time, we're going to have a completely free college system. You already see proposals for free community college. So to pretend that this is not where this heads, it it's really stupid, especially considering most of Europe has done it. A lot of South American countries have done it. So we know where this is going to end. And I think that message that, hey, going to college, being disciplined, taking time, those extra four years, even though it's paid for, taking that time to really evaluate yourself, learn a different perspective, gain a more general understanding of how society works, the philosophies that underpin Western ideology or even different ideologies around the world. A lot of these skills are important and it will show our kids that we're really invested in their future. So I feel like there is a dichotomy here. Yes, it could send the message that, oh, you don't have to work hard and be disciplined and pay off those loans. But it could also say, we value you so much as a citizen, and we value the fact that you would give up four years of your life that we're actually going to pay for your college. And we expect you, because we are paying for it, we expect you to give back to the society. So there are mixed messages there. I don't think there's just one way to take it, but I understand where this author's coming from because she's emotionally responding. She's using pathos, which is, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. What about all these people that have their loans that they've paid off. She's appealing to those type of people who emotionally are like, whoa, whoa, this is unfair. This is not cool. You can't do this to me. You can't screw me over. And that resonates with some people. And I think that has been a lot of the conversation point. That's the first one that you always hear brought up by people on the right. And because it's effective and it really speaks to the population that has worked hard, who is more likely to be Republican, or at least from their point of view, which is, oh, the hard worker, the one willing to bun down, who doesn't expect anything to be given to him, the one that's going to pay off those loans as soon as possible. But that mentality is not exclusively on the right, though you do see that mentality more in the younger generation of the right right now. That's not exclusively a right point of view. So I think I'm oversimplifying it just a little bit. But like I said, they're using the pathos argument and it's effective because it's stoking those emotions of the people that have been responsible, whether they're on the right or the left, because some people on the left are also not 100% okay with this student debt forgiveness. But there is another strong quote that I want to point out here, and this is where the rhetoric and the energy of the article shifts a little bit, and I think it's being a little bit more hyperbolic that I can't necessarily try to steal man and try to provide a good argument against. Quote, student debt is evil. So you can see here where they're speaking about the fact this is, I mean, if you really believe student debt is evil, then the end goal, the logic of this is there's not going to be any student debt, which means that, well, in order to get rid of that evil, we're just going to have to provide free college. So let's keep going with the quote. It just kind of solidifies that the end goal is to have free college. It proves my point from earlier. Quote, it's a crime against our nation, hobbling opportunity and weakening our intellectual infrastructure. It maintains and in many cases rigidifies the racial and class caste system today's Americans inherited from an era of slavery and indenture. 
combined this decision with the six Republicans on the court ending affirmative action and legalizing discrimination this term, it's clear that this is exactly what right-wing billionaires who put them on the court and support their lavish vacations and lifestyles want. If many, if not most, of the people in today's billionaire class have supported and fought for such a caste system since the founding of America. So let's break that down a little bit here. So they ended affirmative action. That is an outright factual statement, 100%. And they legalized discrimination this term. This is a little bit more tricky because did they really legalize discrimination or do you want to frame it in the way that they protected somebody's ability to speak freely? You can frame it either way. And even then, I feel like legalizing discrimination is not necessarily fair because they are not actually saying because you are inherently of a certain class, we are not going to serve you. It's no, because you are engaging in certain types of behavior that I don't agree with. I will not help or engage you or allow you to buy my services. It's like saying, oh, well, because you are Jewish, I am going to discriminate you against you. Obviously, discrimination, that's racism, anti-Semitism, so on and so forth. But it is different than saying, hey, I'm a Jewish person and I want you to make a pro-Israel pamphlet or different type of website. Well, if that person is not pro-Israel, they do not have to use their speech in order to endorse Israel, even though the person who is Jewish has a reason to support Israel and they're trying to hire those services. You can't force somebody else to say something. And the tricky part is whether this person's art or their job that they want to do, which is creating websites, is really freedom of speech. I would say that's even more tricky to really define whether it's considered speech or not. But you can see where they're, they're kind of graying the line here. And this is where I think they get a little bit more dogmatic. And I don't 100% agree. They're trying to cast this. And yes, I say cast. It's a little bit of a pun because they're talking about caste systems. But they're trying to cast this in a light where it's a pure power dynamic, where billionaires have put these people on the court and they're trying. The billionaires are sitting with them in the back room, basically, and saying, hey, I want to keep the status quo as it is. I want to make sure that people can't move up and they can't come into the billionaire class and they can't push for this policy or that policy that would empower the middle class because I want to keep taking advantage of them. I want to lock things in as they are. And I think that is overly cynical. Do the billionaires who back anybody across any party have their interests, just like George Soros, Warren Buffett, or just like Peter Thiel, or any other really famous person who has money, do they have their interests? Of course. But does that mean that they're specifically going to these people, telling them that they absolutely have to enforce their agenda? I think that is extremely cynical. And even then, I think that it's silly to say that they're striking this down purely because of those donors. Because even if those donors were pushing and saying, hey, I want you to do said action, or I want you to rule a certain way on the Supreme Court, guess what? It's not like they can say, oh, I won't give money to your re-election campaign. It's not like they can say, oh, I'm going to make sure that you don't get, that you get primaried next time. No, they are appointed for life. These Supreme Court justices, while they're probably not 100% nonpartisan, they have the protection of being on the court for life. These billionaires cannot affect them once they're on it. Now, they can give their opinion, 
But maybe, just maybe, the justices actually genuinely believe that this student debt, the way that Biden's trying to relieve the student debt, is not 100% legitimate. Using the HEROES Act requires that it is a time of crisis or that it is an emergency. Well, guess what? Biden himself said on a 60 Minutes interview that the pandemic's practically over. And this was, I believe, five, six plus months ago. So the reason that he's using the HEROES Act and saying it's an emergency and that's why we need to cancel this student debt, it doesn't make sense anymore. Now, if they want to take a different path, then they can see if it makes it up to the Supreme Court. If they strike it down and their legal reasoning is sound, then sure. But the thing is, that's not what this author cares about. They're not saying, oh, well, the Supreme Court did right by making sure they didn't go through the HEROES Act. Maybe it can go through the Higher Education Act. No, they want a specific outcome. And therefore, they're saying that just because you said it's not okay to get our specific outcome that we wanted, you are terrible. You are endorsing student debt. And as the author says here, student debt is evil. So, I think that there could be a more moderate approach here. If you really, really don't like the idea that students have to take on student debt and you don't agree with the Supreme Court's decision, you say, okay, let's find another way to do it, see if that's legal, and take it up to the Supreme Court. Maybe they'll agree with us, maybe they don't. And if that doesn't work, guess what? You go through the legislature just like any other bill, any other piece of legislation that has to be passed, especially when it's one that is this large and sweeping that will affect a large majority of the debt held by the federal government, or at least, sorry, the college, the student loan college debt that the government holds. So I think it's a little bit partisan when you're going through this article. And obviously you can tell where my bias lies, and I have a certain opinion on it, and I tried to steel man some of the points earlier, but I did go in hard, especially when they start using the really strong rhetoric but I also want to provide a counterbalance, and I'm going to try to critique them just as well. This next article comes from the New York Post. Sorry, Dems, cruelty isn't making people repay their student debt. It's making everybody else do it. So you can see where this article is coming from, obviously, and you know what they're probably going to say. Oh, well, it's not necessarily fair that somebody else has to pay off that student's debt. And that is why I framed the daily debate the way I did at the very beginning, which is, is it fair when somebody makes a decision and then doesn't have to face the full consequences of that decision and the burden is passed on to other people that played no part whatsoever in the making of that decision? But... I also want to point out life isn't fair sometimes. And like I said earlier, there is a point to be made that the government has a vested interest in producing a well-educated populace. I mean, if you want to increase voter turnout, then you probably want to increase the education of the populace so they are more informed about how their government works and how they can have an influence on the workings of government. If you want to have more teachers, scientists, doctors, engineers, a lot of these people that lead innovation that keep our society running, then you probably should increase education a little bit. The last article, the quote I didn't go to, is the fact that the GI Bill actually increased the number of these educated or these t people that were educated in these positions that require that type of education by a lot. I mean, we got 14 more pro Nobel Prize winners, three Supreme Court justices, three presidents, 12 senators, 24 Pulitzer Prize winners, 
238,000 teachers, so on and so forth. And that was a completely government-sponsored way of sending previous military members and other people that could apply to the GI program to college. But that's me jumping into the last article. Let's go to this one and start with their first line. Quote, on June 30th, the Supreme Court struck down President Joe Biden's attempt to unilaterally cancel, a.k.a. dump on the taxpayer, $430 billion in outstanding student loan debt. In response, progressives issued measured criticisms of the court's decisions and suggested alternative solutions to address the high cost of college. Just kidding. They did no such thing. Rather, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer blasted the MAGA-Republican-controlled Supreme Court and called the decision disappointing and cruel. Teachers Union's boss and key Democratic ally Randy Weingarten dubbed it a, quote, full frontal attack on young people's futures and warned it will increase the risk of default for millions of borrowers, mostly women, people of color, lower-income people, and retired people, end quote. And I think that maybe retired people is a little bit of a stretch. Most people have probably paid it off by then, but maybe it will affect them. One of the very interesting talking points that I've heard from some of the progressive politicians, or not even just the politicians, the commentariat that I've heard, is that the payments don't actually have to restart until a few months down the road, but the accruance on the interest will actually start immediately, meaning that interest payments or the amount of interest will actually start racking up even before people are mandated to pay it down. And some progressives are saying, hey, okay, well, if you're going to at least not cancel the debt, then make sure that the interest starts accruing when people are actually going to be forced to start paying it off. Now, the obvious response is, we'll just start paying it off a little bit early, but some people aren't necessarily in the position to do that right now. They have been either put in hard times because of COVID, because of inflation, or they just haven't been preparing or looking far enough down the road to be able to pay it right now. Now, of course, certain Republicans would push back and say, you should have been paying it off even though you weren't forced to. You should have been paying it off throughout COVID the entire time. But that is a very fortunate position that some people were in where they could keep their jobs, they could go remote, which in theory would be the laptop class or a lot of these kids that are coming out of college with a degree because they're more likely to work in an office, so therefore they could be more likely to stay home and still do their job. But, you know, we're going to leave that aside. Those people, maybe they were put into some really hard times, so they can't necessarily pay off their debt immediately and they need a month or two to get ready. But then it seems kind of weird that the interest can start accruing and that these loans can just sit there getting a little bit larger. The debt or the amount of debt that the student or former student has to pay is kind of racking up while they're not actually forced to pay it. It does seem a little bit weird the way that they are going about implementing it. But there is another point that this article brings up that, well, okay, even if, even if, if you think that it is unfair to burden these kids with this debt just for going to college and getting an education, they want to point out that there is a really large return on investment to going to college, which in theory should offset the amount of money that you have to pay to go. Quote, the Democrat critics of the Supreme Court's decision have spun a narrative of countless Americans who will not go, who will go hungry, face eviction, or otherwise face financial ruin without Biden's relief. If true, it'd be a terrible fate, although still an actual legal defense of Biden's attempt to spend taxpayer money without Congress. 
Thankfully, though, this hysteria is detached from reality. College graduates will be just fine without Biden's unlawful bailout. Why? Well, because the whole narrative about student debt crisis is pretty overhyped to begin with. Emotional rhetoric aside, per the Cato Institute, data shows that on the average monthly payments of a typical student loan borrower is roughly $287. On an annualized basis, student loan payments that are for the typical borrower take up to only 6.2% of their nominal salary. Are we really supposed to believe that asking people to pay a paltry portion of their salary back on a degree estimated to earn them over $1 million more in their lifetime, on average, is seriously going to push them into poverty, end quote? And first off, I would be a little bit hesitant to take that number straight or at least 100% as fact because it's coming from the Cato Institute, which obviously is a think tank slash organization that leans a little bit more to the right, so they could be underestimating things. And, you know, 6.2%, it doesn't sound like a lot, and honestly, it's not that crazy, especially when some people are putting away up to 10% of their salary into investments alone each year. Imagine for the first few years you actually put that 10% plus that 6.2% to paying off your loans so you don't have to pay more interest, and then you could put even more into investments later on. I'm just saying, if you want to be financially prudent, but also think about it this way, in a time when people are having a hard time being able to buy houses because of the market, they're constantly renting, and a lot of people are stuck in renters' economies, and those prices are going up as well. You see a lot of millennials, the data is suggesting that they live paycheck to paycheck. So it might be a little bit harder than this article really wants to give it credit for, but my other argument would be going to college, you should take a few financial literacy courses, even if you're not a business major. I know I'm a little bit different. I'm a business major, so of course I took them. But you should take that opportunity if you're going to college now and you're going to have student debt. Take some financial literacy courses. Take some courses like personal finance just to gain the experience and understand how to be completely prudent with your finances. So while this article is trying to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal, I do think that it could have a disparate impact on a certain segment of the population that is not fully aware of how to be financially responsible, and they should use that money that they're putting towards college in order to become more financially responsible. Maybe we should have some more financial literacy classes, or maybe they should have more resources on campus. I mean, I know my campus had a lot of resources about how to enter the job market and how to really get yourself on the right foot coming out of college. So maybe more colleges need to offer something like this, especially with how much you're paying to go to some of these colleges. It's some of the least that they could do. So while I do agree that 6.2% is not that crazy, it still could be a pain in some people's side. And some people would like to pay it off even quicker than that. They would like to be paying maybe 15% of their salary and try to get that debt off the books so they're not paying it until they're 50. I mean, I have a family member who just now, or at least a few years ago, paid off their debt for law school, and they're 50-some years old. So if you think about it, maybe the Cato Institute is saying, oh, well, this is 6.2% of their nominal salary, but they're not saying, oh, but they'll be paying until they're practically 60 years old. So because I'm thinking $280 a month in payments, that seems really low. I mean, what, if you're doing a loan for about 20000 with maybe a little bit of student aid, and then you have interest on that, and you're only paying off 
287 per month, I feel like you're going to be paying off a lot of extra interest over the years. And some people want to get that done a little bit more quickly. So they pay a little bit more money, but they're in a tight financial position coming out of college. So I think this article is semi-fair. There are some places where they could give us a little bit more details to elucidate what's going on, but they are also using that emotional appeal to people, which is, hey, this isn't fair. And I hate to tell them, life ain't fair sometimes. Sometimes the government's going to pass bills that are going to hurt people that are in certain segments of the economy that are going to hurt the public unions or the private unions are going to hurt the business owners. Sometimes this happens, and being fair is not the ultimate end-all, be-all, at least in some people's minds. And, you know, maybe my value system's a little bit different, but like I said, I don't think life is fair necessarily. I think the role of government should be to protect the people and ensure the long-term success of the country with the least amount of government influence as possible. So I do think the government's overstepping their bounds here, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their motivation for doing it, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome being unfair is necessarily bad. I would say that the government being too large and trying to overreach its bounds is the bad part of this rather than the unfair outcome. But that's just my opinion on the matter. All right, so we have a really, really short article that I want to go to here at the end that comes from 740 KTR News Radio the UN's latest power grab, and Biden supports it. I didn't realize how long I would rant on these other things, but it is a really, really short article. So I'll just read the middle quote that I have here. Quote, basically, the next time we have a pandemic, a climate event, or anything else that the UN leadership deems a global shock, the UN would have the global authority, even here in the United States. It's incredibly shocking that the Biden administration has already come out and said that they are they like the emergency platform, Haskins told KTRH. Quote, you would expect the president of the United States to stand up for American sovereignty and support the individual rights of Americans. And that is not what's happening here. End quote. So this is one of those, you know, if you were living in the 2000s and you were listening to some of the more far out there individuals, not on the right or the left, but they're kind of the more nationalist crowd or even just the more, oh, let's try to push back against the elite crowd, then you would have these fears of overwhelming globalist ideals coming about in America. And while I don't want to just use this term globalist as a pure derogatory, this is a more globally focused kind of plan. This is the UN gaining power over sovereign nations in order to provide dictates, mandates, or maybe even just guidance that the government would be told they should listen to in order to help through these crazy situations like a pandemic. My question then becomes, why should we have one overruling authority on the earth that suggests stuff like this? Why can't we have this beautiful thing that we've kind of developed here in America with a very decentralized society that has 50 different states, just like there are hundreds of different countries around the world where each state tries different things. Imagine this in a pandemic scenario, different countries try different things, and then we're able to glean guidance from which ones, which countries do the best. Like if we look at the Nordic countries, they did pretty well during COVID. Maybe we should take their lead next time. But what if the UN in the future with this 
emergency provision says, no, 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 no. We know Sweden did it this way this last time, but we're not going to recommend that going forward. And they give an overarching edict of what everybody should do. Well, if everybody follows that, if everybody gives up a little bit of their sovereignty and it's the wrong approach, then guess what? We're not going to know about any alternatives because everybody's following in that line rather than having other examples that we can look to and say, oh, wow, okay, China's policy, full lockdown. Well, it looks like they were able to curb some of the infections, but then when people got out, they were more likely to be infected versus Sweden that had a pretty steady rate and didn't have too many excess deaths uh, over the rest of the other populations in Europe. So this idea that there's one overarching authority is scary especially when it comes to in emergency circumstances when people are fearful and they are looking for people to guide them. Should we really have a global organization that gives the mandates or should we have a decentralized system that allows for testing of different methods across the board and then provides insight into where we should go in the future rather than, like I said, having one basic overlord, you know, having one emperor of the galactic empire in Star Wars that gives all the orders and basically has unilateral control. But, hey, that's just me. I'm, you know, maybe I like the sovereignty of America a little bit too much. Maybe I just like my nation and love the country that I live in. But, you know, I could be crazy. Who knows? All right, so let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Boing Boing. Adorable new octopus species discovered in, quote, uninhabitable deep sea nursery. So a once thought to be uninhabitable part of the ocean is being called home by a new family. Quote, a team of researchers recently discovered a new species of octopus just chilling in a deep sea nursery off the coast of Costa Rica. End quote. And what's really interesting is that this is the first time that, or at least one of the first times, that we've seen these very rare octopus nurseries and now we, you know, we don't necessarily know a whole bunch about them now, but this may give us an opportunity to learn a little bit more. Quote, the octopus nursery is located on the top of a cold hydrothermal vent. When scientists first discovered it back in 2013, they found 100 female octopu uh, octopuses, I thought it was octopi, but I guess it's octopuses, watching over their egg broods. But none of the eggs were deemed to be viable because of the cold conditions. Well, that is different now. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article, or you want to read any of the other articles from today's podcast, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade on Tuesdays and Thursdays. A little bit less scripted, don't necessarily have quotes from articles. I'm just kind of going off the top of the dome talking about some very interesting issues in my mind. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>